Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8 through verse 16. God's word from the New Testament, Hebrews 11, 8 through 16, God's word. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who seek, who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let's pray. So where is your homeland? Do you have a place of deep family roots? Well, for many of us, we've kind of lost this sense of having a homeland. Now, for much of history and in other parts of the world, your homeland was where your ancestors lived for generations. This was, this was where you were born and buried. You worked and raised a family, and you passed your heritage on to your kids and your grandkids. A homeland provides a sense of identity and safety a sense of belonging and stability. And yet most of us are immigrants. In the not-so-distant past, our families left the home country. We also can be of mixed background. When a half of your ancestry is from Senegal, a quarter from Poland, and a quarter from Taiwan, what is your motherland? Likewise, others have moved around a lot. You've lived in Chicago, Tampa, Dallas, and Seattle, so... Where is home? Thus we can feel rootless or at least have quite shallow ancestral roots. We're not sure how to answer the question, where are you from? Well, this sense of not belonging actually runs deep in our spiritual ancestry. And it's one of the elements of faith that keeps our eyes focused upon our true inheritance. So this documentary on the history of faith here in Hebrews 11 continues to roll on. And so far, we have seen how faith, being the substance and evidence of our unseen hopes, lives by the word of God. Abel offered a sacrifice with eyes of faith upon Christ, and the Lord testified to him that he was righteous. Enoch walked with God in faith. The Lord revealed his good pleasure with Enoch and granted him a go-directly-to-heaven card. God forecast to Noah that a titanic flood was coming, and so in faith he built a boat 
to save his family and to become an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. By the faith of these saints, we receive firm testimony that the invisibles of the covenant are true substances, not seen, but no less real. And in this next episode on faith, we come to Abraham, who in many ways is the grand patriarch of faith. As we believe in Jesus, we become the spiritual children of Abraham. He's our father. His spiritual DNA lives in us. And again, the word takes the lead. For God called him to leave. He was ordered to depart. And this is no minor summons. For what was Abraham leaving? Well, as Genesis says, it was his land, his native home, and his family. His brothers, cousins, and extended relatives. These are your support system, your loved ones, the anchors of your identity. The motherland is the soil of your infancy. It's your comfort zone where you know every shopkeeper, each tree in the field, and just how to work the land. In ancient times, to up and leave your family could be perceived as desertion, abandonment. It's likely that Abraham had uncles poking him with sharp rebukes, telling him not to go. And yet Abraham left. He trusted in the word of God more than the advice of his loving family. He packed up the U-Haul and he hit the road. He peered at his homeland in the rearview mirror for the last time. Moreover, where was he going? Such a radical departure can only be achieved with a clear and grand destination. And yet, as we're told, Abraham did not know. He was destination unknown. He had no travel guide on Canaan with glossy pictures and Yelp reviews and descriptions of its geography. No, Abraham heard whispers of Canaan, but he knew nothing about this land. All he did have was the the Lord's word that said, I will show you. Essentially, his destination was invisible, completely ignorant to the eyes of Abraham. And yet Abraham went. In faith, he obeyed the Lord's word. He packed his bags, abandoned his comfort zone, and headed into the wild unknown. And all because God said so. Humanly speaking, this is having more faith than sense. And yet the Lord did dangle a juicy carrot before Abraham. He said, go to the land and that I will give you. This order of the Lord came with the promise of ownership. And owning real estate has always been highly desirable. To have a place to call your own home, not to be under the thumb of landlords and increasing rents? What a dream. To sink your toes into the soil that is all yours, this is grounded in our very humanity. It's the body to our soul. Thus, whatever this Canaan was like, Abraham was about to receive it as an inheritance. The land would be all his. He would have the deed and hold it in trust to pass it on to his kids tax-free. The Lord's promise was a grand gift. And yet, things did not turn out as first expected. 
Yes, Abraham made it to the promised land. His eyes got to see the place he trusted in the Lord for. Though one thing in particular didn't pan out. Abraham dwelt in the land. But note it says he lived in it as a foreign place. He sojourned in the land, dwelling in tents. And this is a socio-political status. To be a sojourner means you are an immigrant with very limited rights. Now, back in the day, sojourners typically had a green card to reside in the country, and they had a work permit to earn a living, but they were not citizens with no right to vote, no right to be part of legal assemblies, and especially no license to own property. Hence this phrase, to live in tents. To inhabit tents meant you were a nomad. You had a P.O. box, but no home address. Nomads could pitch their tents in open lands, but soon they had to move on after a while. Being a nomad is like living out of a suitcase from one Motel 6 to another Motel 8. Nomads never get to unpack and organize their cupboards or garages. A roof of wood and clay is a privilege that nomads do not know. Thus, Abraham reached the land that God was going to grant him ownership to, but he never possessed a square foot of it. And it was the same with Isaac and Jacob. Three generations lived in tents. Sure, the wealth of Abraham increased greatly with herds of goats and camels, but he never owned a squat of land. How does this work? Doesn't this mean that God's promise faltered? The Lord offered a land of inheritance, and Abraham never inherited any land. Was Abraham's faith for naught? Did his faith just wither and die? Could he bring a suit against the Lord for a failed promise? Well, no. Instead, this lack of ownership clarified and focused his faith. As it says, for he was looking for a city with foundations. And this founded city brings into sharpness into what was previously ambiguous. Note in verse 8 here, it said he was called to go to a place. Talk about undefined. A place can be anything. What place? So also Abraham didn't know where he was going. He had no details about this obscure place. The only one solid fact to identify this place was ownership. When God gave Abraham ownership, then he would know the place. But then he got to the promised land and stayed in tents and was prohibited any ownership. And without ownership in Canaan, Abraham's faith realized that the Lord was thinking of a better place. His faith looked up from the earthly plot to the heavenly one. His faith peered past the land to a city with which had many foundations. Now, a foundation makes something solid and lasting. A foundation indicates permanence. And numerous foundations stacked up like pancakes reveals an eternal durability. Hence, this city was designed and constructed by God himself. No human laid its foundations. No man or woman was the architect or carpenter of this city. 
but its artisan and craftsman was the Almighty. In fact, this language of a city with foundations echoes imagery in the Psalms of Jerusalem. Therefore, by being denied ownership in Canaan, Abraham's faith grasped the heavenly Jerusalem. As he was stuck in a tent, Abraham realized what God was actually promising. And this is faith working well. Too often, when God's promises are not realized for us, our first reaction is to doubt the promise. We point the finger at the Lord. Something's wrong with him. And yet this is not what Abraham did. Instead, he pointed the finger at his own understanding. God promised ownership. I have no ownership in Canaan. So maybe God is talking about another place. If I cannot own land on earth, then my deed of ownership must lie in heaven. If I get nothing in this land that's always changing hands, then the Lord has in store for me a permanent city. Thus Abraham's faith beheld the unseen reality of his hope that laid in the world above. His trust rested in the Lord who designed and built for him an everlasting city. His faith apprehended the unseen world of heaven as more real than the physical plane that we can touch and taste. In this way, the eyes of faith can see truer than the eyes of flesh. Hence, the faith of Abraham testifies to us about the steadfastness and reliability of our Lord and his promises. And this same faith was also found in the wife as well as in the husband. The witnesses and models of faith are both men and women. And so by faith, Sarah conceived, which is a feat no less than Abram's. For as it says, Sarah was past the age. The way of women had ceased with her. She was postmenopausal. Her body no longer had the capacity of fertility. And this just added wound to injury, for as you know, Sarah had been barren her whole life. Her reproductive system had never worked, and now at 90 years old, menopause had retired what had already been broken. Her getting pregnant was about as impossible as turning lead into gold. And yet she conceived. She carried to term. She gave birth to a healthy baby. Pregnant at 90? This is more likely to kill you than give you a kid. Sarah, though, gave birth. She held as a mother her own baby for the first time in nine decades. And how? Because she regarded God as faithful. She trusted in the reliability of the Lord's promise, even to do the impossible. Now, in the text of Genesis, Sarah's faith is not recorded pre-pregnancy. In Genesis 18, when she first hears about the Lord's promised baby, Sarah laughs in skepticism at the outrageous prediction. No way can she have a baby. 
And yet in Genesis 1, after the birth of Isaac, we get a wonderful song of faith from Sarah. There, her laughter has changed from skepticism to the joy of belief and thanksgiving. As she says, God brought me laughter. I have borne a son in my old age. Here she praises the fidelity and the power of the Lord to grant her the impossible, a baby boy. This is her testimony that she regarded God as faithful. It is an after-the-fact evidence that she trusted in God beforehand. And yet, what is the evidence that Sarah believed the Lord before she got pregnant? Well, she invited Abraham out on a romantic date. When God promises kids, faith makes love. Therefore, the faith of our mother Sarah shines as brightly as did Abraham. Sarah's faith apprehended its invisible hope. She regarded the Lord as faithful, and her faith was not disappointed. Yes, the faith of our spiritual matriarchs teaches us just as much as our spiritual patriarchs. And yet, there's a particular moment when Abraham and Sarah's faith stood out. A specific event sealed their faith. So the next verse, From one man were born descendants as innumerable as the stars of the heaven and the sand on the beach. From one Abraham came a vast host of people. Now, this comparison to the stars and the beach sand is found in the book of Genesis. Abraham and Sarah heard this promise themselves. And yet, this exact phraseology of the lines from verse 12 here comes not from Genesis. Rather, here the author cites Exodus 32 and Deuteronomy 1. And the setting of these passages is after Israel came out of Egypt as a mighty whore. These quote then not the promise, but the fulfillment, at least on the earthly level. Hence, this line in the middle of verse 12 means, after he died. This does not refer to Abraham's feebleness at age 100, but it's the epitaph of his headstone. For Abraham and Sarah did not see a vast host of their descendants. No, they died knowing only a single child, Isaac. The ocean of their inhabitants or descendants wouldn't happen for another 400 years after they died. This means that the faith of Sarah and Abraham shines the brightest not in life, but in death. Thus, the next verse, these all died in faith. Our mom and dad lived by faith, and they died by faith. They planned for themselves funerals of faith. For when they slept with the worms, they had not received the promised thing. Abraham and Sarah didn't own any plots in the promised land. They had Isaac, but their quiver was not full of the stars of heaven. This couple of faith did not have a massive family or a homeland when they died. 
death, though, did not bury their faith, but it gave it a superior vision and a happier hello. In death, it says, they had not the promises, but they saw and greeted them from afar. And to greet and confess, here has the connotation of to salute. That is, there was an ancient practice that if you lived far away from your motherland, you would face it and salute it in honor and devotion. An Egyptian living in Rome would face southeast and salute his fatherland. Thus, in death, Sarah and Abraham looked heavenward and they saluted, O homeland, here I come. They climbed into the tomb announcing that there were strangers and exiles on earth. And this line about being strange exiles and sojourning aliens is pulled from Genesis 23 when Abraham buried Sarah in the cave at Machpelah. He told those Hittites that his wife was an alien on earth and she couldn't be laid to rest in one of their graveyards. They needed their own tomb that belonged to God. And this is a profound expression of faith in death. A funeral faith speaks louder than the faith by which we live. To say about the earth in death that it is a foreign country declares that you are not of the earth. It publishes your motherland is found not on this terrestrial ball. So the next verse, people who speak like this make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. To be a stranger means you are not home. Aliens sense poignantly that they do not belong They don't fit in. Exiles ache for the feeling of home as they live in a strange place. And to confess in death means that the home you long for is not on earth. As you know, one of the most consistent burial practices in every culture is to be laid to rest in your homeland. Immigrants will travel thousands of miles to bury their parents in their ancestral lands. The traditional uh, funeral liturgy is, I am dust, and to dust I return. We are earthlings, and we return to the earth. But Abraham refused this tradition in faith. In death, Sarah's faith declared, I am not of the earth. This is not my home. I do not go back to dust. As Hebrews clarifies, They were not thinking about the homeland they left. That is, if Abraham and Sarah were thinking of Iran, where their family still lived, then they could have gone back. But in death, they didn't miss their family life. If they wanted to be buried with Terah in Haran, they could have made the trip. But this was not the country they were seeking, for they desired a better country. They labeled the promised land of Canaan as a foreign place. And why? Because it was not good enough. Indeed, their faith was set upon heaven. They entered the grave to pass from this world into the next. In death, to confess that you are an alien on earth is to renounce this age. 
It acknowledges that God's promise is too grand and too glorious for this world. And it welcomes heaven. So in death, Abraham and Sarah's faith testified that this world was not their home. They trusted in the promise of the Lord for a lasting inheritance. And by faith, they stepped into death, not as the end, but as the beginning of something marvelous. Their believing faith, uh, uh, confession, acknowledged that the Lord himself was their homeland, their true identity. Thus, by naming God in faith in their deaths, the Lord was not ashamed to be their God. Abraham confessed God, and the Lord confessed Abraham. Sarah announced the name of the Lord, and the Almighty named Sarah as his daughter. This is the beautiful pride and love of the covenant formula. If a hubby says, that's my wife, If a wife shouts, that's my man, this is the joy and delight to be identified with the other. Such an honorable statement says, I love that person. It's my privilege to be theirs, to be identified with them. And as faith says this about God in death, the Lord happily returns the favor. And such pride from the Lord is a crescendo of grace and mercy. For if you think about it, it's quite easy for us to claim God because he's so wonderful. To identify with the beauty of perfection, this is natural. The Lord created all. He governs all things wonderfully. He sent forth his son for our redemption. He lavishes upon us grandiose promises. To say that Yahweh is mine is simple for faith. But to claim us? How is this possible? For we are rebellious creatures. We are hateful children who wallow in the mud pit of sin and depravity. In sin, we are a gross and disgusting thing. No sane mind would want to be identified with us. And yet the Lord did. Well, and how? Well, this mention of the Lord not being ashamed of us links back to chapter 2 in Hebrews where Jesus took on our humanity, suffered death in order to bring many sons to glory. By his incarnation and atonement, Jesus became the sanctifier of us, and so as it says, he was not ashamed to call us brothers. Therefore, God's pride to name you as his own comes through faith. It's a gift of grace. It's applied to us through faith in Christ who died to make us holy like himself. The Father not being ashamed of you is the grace of the gospel in its full glory. Thus the last line here, he prepared for us a city. God built for you a heavenly city with many foundations. The Lord's word declares the city to you and creates faith in you to behold it from afar and to confess it in death. And then through death, God keeps you in Christ for this glorious city. 
Beloved saints, this is the gift of God for you. All of grace for an eternal salvation, which is yours freely through faith alone. So then, like Sarah and like Abraham before us, let us live by faith in Christ. But especially, may we die in this faith. May we plan our funerals around Christ to confess Jesus as our only Savior and to announce that we are aliens on earth. By the blood of Christ, this world is not our own. We are our home. We have no lasting possession in this age, but you have a heavenly city, Jerusalem, founded in the very righteousness of Christ that is yours by faith alone. Praise God, then, for his glorious grace. To name us, and not to be ashamed to be our God in life, in death, and forever.